We're going to take a detour from our regular programming to offer this extended interview with composer, director, and accordionist Michael Ward Bergman. If you heard episode five, you heard him play on a radical new accordion that he invented. But for this interview, we took a deep dive into his newly released documentary about a group of street musicians in New Orleans. The film is called The Saints and Sinners of Jackson Square, and it's running the festival circuit right now, including at the Big Apple Film Festival. I am so excited to introduce Michael Ward Bergman, one of my favorite human beings of all time. He's an accordion player, composer, arranger, currently living in New Orleans, and who has collaborated with some of the greatest musicians on the planet. Music fans in the Eugene Springfield area might recall him playing with Yo-Yo Ma at the Oregon Bach Festival, or his playing for the Ed's co-ed soundtrack Beta Collide put together years ago. Most recently, he produced and directed a documentary called the Saints and Sinners of Jackson Square, which I was fortunate enough to see a screener of. And I gotta say, it is the most impressive and authentic film about New Orleans music that I have ever seen. In Michael's own words, this film is a love letter to the New Orleans street musicians who welcomed me as one of their own from the very first time I began playing with them in 2011. And we'll get to this film a little bit later, but first, I just want to say... Hey, Michael, how you doing? What's going on? Wow. Um, I'm, I'm moved by uh, what you just said. It's, weird. it's strange to hear uh, somebody talk about the film that way that also knows about New Orleans and spent some time here uh, because this is really the first time that I've spoken about the film in public. Um, I haven't really had the opportunity I'm already getting messed up here. Oh my god, I can't even talk. About it. I can't even. There's so much weight behind me and you and the film. I mean, I can't even talk. So yeah, this is the first time I'm talking about it, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, it's good to be back in touch. Well, let's just dive in with the film while we're on it. It's on the festival circuit now. Um, having been most recently selected for the Big Apple Film Festival, which I'm going to include links on our website for that. Um, and I just want to encourage everyone out there to try and check it out. Watch the outtakes on Michael's website. Get your hands on the soundtrack, whatever you can to watch this film. It's gorgeous. I think what, what I took away from this thing, there's, a, there's a, a sense of humanity that New Orleans musicians have that I have never seen captured on film that humanity was front and center and it's been this thing that i haven't been able to figure out how to describe and now i know how i'm going to tell them to just watch this movie um can you talk a little bit about if you agree with me that humanity that you think yeah i totally i totally agree with you and man i just the first thing that comes to mind when you said that is suffering mm. and um what these men have been through in the lives that they've led and experienced and had put upon them. When I came here, it made everything that I had complained about and felt bad about and got upset about seem like I was in preschool in diapers. That's how insignificant everything that I thought like, Oh, I'm upset about this. It's like 
every single one of those guys have had a, a contoured, a different contour of their lives, but the theme of each one of their lives is immense suffering. That that to even be uh, a witness to them telling it and and sharing it, which is a slow thing because they don't wear it on their sleeve at all. They mm. transform it through their music. Mm-hmm. So that that's what you that's what you, hits you. Um, so. Um, when you start to hear their stories and different things, which I only still know a tiny bit because they're very hesitant to talk about any of it. Um, you know, uh, every time it's a new thing and it's just like, I couldn't, I can't even believe, uh, that things like that, uh, have happened to these people. You went to new Orleans. What was it? 2011. Uh, that was my first time to New Orleans in 2011, and then the, a seed was planted when I when I came here because I was just traveling around playing places, and, and New Orleans was a place that everyone had told me about. And I, when I came, it it delivered uh, beyond any wildest expectation I could add. And then a seed was planted, and somehow the universe, um, you know, smiled upon us, and we wound up here in 2013 to move here. You were playing on the street a little bit. And you connected with some of these musicians, right? Well, that was 2011. I had that transformative experience, uh, which uh, is explained in the film somewhat, where I was playing with with the bass drummer that I had met on the first night that I was here. He just came up and started playing with me, and it was like the groove. For me, he became like the heartbeat of New Orleans, and and it just was such a deep groove. One hit of the bass drum, and you could tell that it was him, and you just, you know, it sounds crazy, but that's, you know, just like that. I mean, you know, so we were playing on a corner, and then this other guy just showed up playing trumpet, and at that point, uh, I went into a, a, a dream world. Because, you know, when he, the, the trumpet player started to play, there were 200 people around us in, in uh, 30 seconds. And um, I didn't even know what he was playing or anything. And um, I was just riding this, this wave. And when we finished, we had a box full of money. And I was like being not having an instrument that was part of the tradition and not even knowing the, the music and not even knowing these guys um i was like man you gotta at least take take half of what we made or whatever take whatever you want we'll split the rest because i thought that was the fair thing to do and that's where i came from the people that were at the top you know uh, and drawing the crowd or or you know that were schooled in the specific tradition for years and and could express that on their instrument were the ones who got paid the most well that was my first education and it was like he looked at me, he said, No, we don't do that here. <laughs> rough voice. And then I felt really stupid. <laughs> it was like, and, Oh, man. I, so was, was that Kenneth Terry? That's Kenneth Terry. Yep. And those two guys, Malcolm was the bass player. Those are the guys that I was closest with for a long time in New Orleans. Um, Malcolm and moved, Morris and Kenneth Terry. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so then I. As I was telling you the other day, then I got another bright idea, which I should have known at that point not to get any more bright ideas. But I saw him selling CDs when we were playing. So then I'm like, man, I love this guy's playing. I want to support him. Let me at least buy a CD. And so I went, hey, man, well, if you're not going to do that, let me at least buy 
a CD. And then he looked at me like I was even dumber. And he just said, I'm not on these. Yeah. Which at that point, it really did um, from the perspective where I was. Because yeah. that could be looked on. For, for about 30 seconds, my brain didn't even understand what he was saying. I yeah. actually can remember the feeling because it hasn't really happened that many times. I mean, it, it could have the aliens could have been landing. That's yeah. how strange. Like, because I'm like, wait, uh, he's not on these. He's selling the CD is the most important thing that you can have, you know, right. as an artist. It's like, this is my CD. This is my body of work. So, you know, I walked away completely flabbergasted. And, um, you know, he had just found a box of CDs or had a box of CDs from a friend of his and was using it as a hustle. And, um, you know, that's what it was. But someone of such magnitude, as I yeah. said, schooled in the tradition, like the whole thing, totally the paradigm really of the way the world worked, if you want to get down to the real nitty gritty, I mean, on an upper level, it's like the paradigm of the music business or music in general and, and making money with music was ripped, was destroyed. Yeah. In that, in that uh, exchange. And uh, that was the big seed that was planted. You know, it, it immediately paints a picture of a, a lamentable socioeconomic status. I, I'm sorry to sound so academic, but no, that's, no, that's well, I, I don't is. even know what that means, but I think I get the gist. <laughs> The, the thing is, listen, you know, this is what it really, for me, boils down to. It's, and I couldn't help, I can't help but reflect on it to this day. It's like, I don't have anything to do with these guys. As I just explained, my suffering doesn't even come close to anything that, that they've lived. My ethnicity is, is the exact, you know, in mm -hmm. another field. My economic thing. Every, yeah, mm. every single thing is different. And yet the instrument i play an accordion right which does have roots down here but not in the brass band tradition at all right and yet the guy just met me and i'm telling him take more take more money no we don't do that it's beautiful and it's so alien like you're saying and to to hear a story about how it's more evenly distributed on the street in this way is it's humbling to hear that yeah because it's confusing it's confusing because these guys from i mean maybe they need nothing at all mm -hmm. which is the ultimate truth but from my perspective it's like they need the most can mm -hmm. i mean these guys were still in a position where they were not uh I don't want to say successful, but, you know, the, from my barometer of, of what it means, you know, for someone like, you know, Kenneth is one of those musicians, like that you said at the beginning, that I've had the, the immense fortune to play with the, some of the best musicians in the world. Kenneth is one of those people. Yeah. And I do not say that without uh, uh, seriously uh, considering what I'm saying. And, uh, you know... Yeah, yeah, and it's really clear in the film your the um, the respect that you have for these musicians, and from my standpoint as a musician myself, trained in the classical and jazz arts or whatever, <laughs> watching this film and listening to the vibe that these musicians bring to the table, 
um, makes me second guess all of my training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Welcome to my world. The bot, the bottom fell out of everything that night and it continued to, it continued to, because listen, listen, you know, there was so much that I couldn't share in the movie just because there's so much to, to talk like, you know, that we didn't really get into any of their, their past and the thing like the suffering that the, the, each of them has gone through. Uh, but, you know, I tried to get them to talk about what it means to make music on the street, because for me, I've had some of the most profound music making experiences of my entire life on the street. And let, let me tell you one of them, just to give you an idea. And this kind of stuff would happen many times a week when we were out there. So we're playing on the street and, um, Normally, the guys don't, uh, they, they're masters at interacting with the, the crowd and, and, and people that are listening. And, but they don't let it get in the way of the music at all. So, if, so they, you, you'll never interrupt the guy and have them stop a song or, or something like that. They know how to handle it in a, such a loving, friendly way that hmm. everybody just goes along. So there was this one time we're all playing, we're into it hard, and uh, some uh guy comes up he was with two younger uh girls and the teenagers and he comes up and he starts whispering in ricky paul and the clarinet the clarinetist uh he starts whispering in his ear and ricky puts his hand up for everybody to stop and the band just want now you know from watching the film what the groove is like when you're in that groove oh. man it's like a, it's like a train you know yeah. so for him to like put his hand up and the whole thing comes to a stop and he's like, we have to play just a closer walk with thee. Hmm. And they, the, the guy goes back to the two girls and I see that the, one of the girls is holding a box and in the box is the ashes of their mother, which they've come from up North to sprinkle into the Mississippi river. Oh. And they wanted to have the band play before they did it oh that's really moving to hear and i can just the way you tell the story and perhaps it's also just watching the film i'm just instantly transported to the feel of that street scene with those musicians and the care that they have for their and what an audience it is it's like the actual public right it's not ticket holders that go into a place well brian this is this is another part of it this is what, and what puzzled me, because these guys, I mean, listen, they all come from the suffering and they have all the baggage that immense suffering brings, which both informs their music, but is potentially destroying their lives because they have to self-medicate, do things to try to deal with everything that has gone on. So they're not, I, I don't know the right word exactly to say but like these guys should have been the stars of new orleans to me and i always serve them that way and that's why i wanted to do the film and why you know why i'm why i'm living in new orleans but they were kind of overlooked in a way the way is the way i saw it and i i really couldn't figure it out because the things that i saw we're not talking about just the public we're talking about the world 
the world comes to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And I and I know what that's like a little bit because I've I've traveled around the world and played for people and there's a certain energy that I know you're familiar with as well that when you play for people in different areas it's just you feel you know it's a certain energy that goes through you and when you and I have had that energy here in New Orleans uh, from playing on the street it's the same exact thing except the people are coming to where I'm living. And it's people from all over the place, people that don't speak English, people that any people that don't come from, you know, from the furthest culture, you know, in contrast. And yet they are moved to tears and you will find, you know, something else as I talk about, I see these other things. Another thing that I saw on the street pretty regularly was like homeless people dancing with businessmen and women. Yeah, from around the world that are just so moved and want to express their joy and celebration that there's no the judgment and everything. Everything just fades away and it's just the, the groove and the music and the love of, of, of doing it all. Moving down to Baton Rouge and then getting into the New Orleans scene a little bit. My world was completely rocked. Um I started realizing that what I thought was valuable for me in New York had no value in in the South, in New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Um, I was involved with these musicians that when they would start to play, like you, you talking earlier about the groove is like a train. Um, I would get on this train and feel immediately, like even in the first few seconds, like, Oh, oh, wow. This is going <laughs> to, this is going to last. I can already tell this is going to go on for four or five hours, right? The, the way this is set up, the way this is going. And I immediately felt like I am not ready for this. <laughs> I am not prepared. I t- totally feel um, out of my element. I was so intimidated by that thing because I'd never really experienced it before. Maybe it's not just that it's a train; it's the quality of that train. It's like the determination. I would say, I would say, determination. Yeah, that's part of it. It's the depth. It goes down to the roots. You know, yeah. like I said, I wasn't kidding when I said one hit of the bass drum, and you just like knew it was like boom. You know, and then you know, put that into a groove context, and it's like, you know. People are moving. Yeah. People are moving. You know, it's vibrating. You know, it's everybody is, you know, resonating deep. Yeah. And so one of the greatest parts of your film <clears throat> to me is that you took this, I think you were really brave in this as a director. I don't know if other directors would have done this. You put the, the, the songs that they played with you, the, the, the band played, in their entirety. Um, so it, the film is like you get a portrait of one of the musicians and then you hear a tune, the entire tune. And then you get another portrait of a musician and you get an entire tune where I think a lot of directors might have like cut out some stuff, go back and forth or whatever. But what I've, I want to just say this to you. I think that was so important to have in the film even though I'm sure you were not sure about it, or I don't know, maybe maybe that's not exactly right. It's so important to have in the film because you get the sense of that train. You get the sense of that, like how a tune is going to just 
pull you through like a whole story. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, I, I don't think there was there was never any question about that because the film really revolved around these two live shows that we did. And there was no way that I was, I mean, because the music was always the main thing because of what I said before, that you can't get these guys to talk about everything that's happened to them. You, you wouldn't even have the time. I mean, you know, you and you wouldn't even be able to deal with it. If people heard the things that these guys have been through, like maybe you could do a, one film on each guy, <laughs> then you could do it, you know, cause, but it, it's just so much. And it's through the music that you can have a glimpse of what it is because they transform it into something that's beautiful. But behind it, if you're really uh, sensitive and, and listening and looking for it, I think you can, you can see that there's, you know, like I said, the depth. It's a very, very deep thing. So, you know, I wouldn't want to, I didn't want to edit or impede any of the, you know, what these guys were putting out. And, 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 you know, when I found new Orleans, this was something that I had been looking for really my whole life, partially because of my instrument, but I was always looking for the, for this, you know, for tradition that was deeply rooted. So I would find myself in, you know, there were a couple other styles of music that really had that for me, the, the Roma people in Romania and, and this Chamame from uh, Northeastern Argentina when I found New Orleans, I was like, this is what I've been looking for my entire life hmm. with these guys that were part of something that was generations old. Um, you know, so that's speaking as well. And, you know, I, I'm sure that the, the music, um, you know, it's, it, it's rooted in Africa and all that that means for the United States. So there's the, the, there's all of that in it. You know, it's this just it's it's a really immense um, it's an immense experience that's being expressed. So the music is front and center because it contains all that stuff. Yeah, it's really clear. And you described it as I already quoted you. You described it as a love letter and it reads like a love letter. And it really brought me back to that <clears throat> scene myself. And I was really moved. So I. I just, again, want to impress upon people to just see what they can do to check out this film, The Saints and Sinners of Jackson Square, um, directed by Michael Ward Bergman. And um, again, I'll be putting links up everywhere that um, to draw your attention to it. It's certainly worth it. You're active in, in the scene down there. You're still playing, right, on the streets. Is that true? Um. Well, yes, but not at the frequency that I was when I really forged the relationships with these guys. It was, um, you know, it was pretty much since from 2013 to 2016 through 2017 that I was like out there five to seven days a week, like really doing it. Um, so that's a little bit less so. Um, and, you know, obviously now... <laughs> with the pandemic, it's been amazing because some of those guys in the film, uh, while it's, oh, while things are happening now, you know, with online stuff and, and people do, 
when if the first few months there was nothing going on except these guys playing in front of Cafe Du Monde. Huh. So that was amazing to see because yeah. you saw the French Quarter all boarded up hmm. and like nobody, no tourists, no anything. You know, there's a little bit of that now. But there they were. So I, I would went out a little bit more then and played with them a bunch of times. But they were out there seven days a week, you know, early in the morning to till the afternoon doing it. And uh, God, I was so grateful because, you know, who would have, if someone would have told me, oh, New Orleans is going to be a silent city in, in 2020, I would have laughed. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, so I'm not playing as much on the street. Um, you know, I just have a lot of different things going on musically that, you know, um, and that are kind of. R- r- resurfacing in a way as I kind of expressed to you the other day it's like um have doing this film in a way and it, it was a was a uh kind of not a culmination but a, a kind of important milestone in my time here in New Orleans and um I think doing it and uh seeing it through it it's still going to be a ride i'm sure even now that it's quote unquote done um but it's having finished it it's opening up some other um musical things that i kind of left in the dust when i just (laughs) i'm thinking like it's like like when somebody meets a guru you know like i a way i i mean it's it's not a cult but i mean i I, you know, my parents actually were concerned because we had nothing when we moved here. So it's like I just dropped everything and just was like my 99 percent of my focus became these guys. So uh, anything that I was working on, it kind of goes back to what I said, like made me seem like I was in diapers, <laughs> not only not only emotionally and, and, and spiritually, but like also, my, quote unquote, my work. Yeah. seemed pathetic you know i <laughs> so yeah so anyway so now some of that is coming back to me and hopefully you know i can bring something else to it you know that that gives it some uh, uh deeper meaning you know that i hopefully i've learned something from these guys uh yeah i <laughs> <laughs> I that uh, you know to go back I got now we got to go back a little bit. So <laughs> my I can I resonate so much with what you just said. And the diapers thing now has become even clearer to me. That's how I felt moving down to that area. I it made me second guess everything in my life, my my entire body of work, every every aspiration that I had musically or what I thought music even was. It, it was, it totally rocked me. And, you know, I, I don't know if I ever really told you about the whole Katrina thing. You uh, did a little bit, a little yeah. bit, but tell me again. Tell me. Well, so Katrina happened. It was my second year in Baton Rouge and um, I was about to start school, but school of course was canceled at LSU where I was teaching. And um, I had been playing with some people and kind of getting an idea of what the vibe was in, in, in that area and just getting schooled myself uh, by all these musicians. 
Katrina happened, and of course, I you know volunteered for the Red Cross. Did did like a week of you know twelve hour days, just getting people clothes, food, making sure they you know had all this stuff. It, it, actually, some of the most horrifying stories in my life uh, were around that time when I remember going up to the first day when you know after five thousand people had arrived at this particular uh, convention center in Baton Rouge. It took about 10 days after the storm hit for me to be like, okay, I'm going to invest in this community and, and invest in a, a different way of thinking about music. Otherwise, I'm leaving music and I'm just going to, that's it. I, I really hit rock bottom uh, for myself. So I started this, uh, well, one of the things that happened in the convention center were 5,000 people and there were three shelters uh, in place in Baton Rouge. Each of them had 5,000 people. It was interesting culturally to see what happened. Like the first few days, it was just chaos. Cots were lined up, but people were just roaming around. But after a few few more days, you start to see things pop up. You see like a little tent that comes up. It's like a, a, a chapel, right? People go there in the mornings to pray with a reverend or whomever. And then you see another tent pop up. It's like a little daycare or like a kindergarten kind of vibe where the parents who need a break, they start putting their kids in there. Like, just give us a couple hours. And somebody responsible was like, you know, taking the helm at dealing with those kids. And I, I, it was interesting to see that. So I was like, okay, these people need to hear some music. So I set up this weekly festival essentially, in the, in the shelter itself. I got some funding from Winton's uh, On Higher Ground thing. And I just used all the money to pay musicians from New Orleans and Baton Rouge to come in and play once a week. And the lessons that I learned from that, just seeing how people gravitated towards music, how they all came together, um, how they would... <laughs> the musicians didn't care if it was... If I told them, you know, we got to limit it to an hour. No, no, that doesn't go over in, in down here. No, it's it's a minimum of like five hour gig kind of thing. Um, right, right. I mean, just the first tune lasts an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're ministering, man. They're ministering. They are you know? ministering, yeah. Yeah. and that's yeah. the thing. The just the the weight of the music was so impactful, and you could see it on on all of these. Uh, all these uh, evacuees. It was really, really impressive to me. I, I, and that's kind of what made me start thinking about music as not something that's like um, achievement based. It's community based, um, and I think that uh, uh, in- yeah, you know, this is something that year in 2011 when I came here, uh, and I actually did a lot of playing in Eugene during this year. It was a year that I did this thing because I was kind of questioning what music was about and i was like i want to play every single day of the year in all kinds of places both traditional and non-traditional venues and uh just every single day of the year from january 1 to december 31st and that was 2011 that was the first year i came to new orleans and the the question was and i had this written out as kind of like a thing you know what does it mean to make music every day and all these questions you know what will there be a you know, uh, something that happens cyclically, 
in a cycle and will, uh, you know, and the answer that I got was New Orleans because in the way the universe said, oh, you're really curious about this stuff? Okay, meet these guys. They've been playing every day since they've been three years old on the street. So to go back to what you said uh, about the five-hour thing, you know, that, okay, you're going to hire them. The gig starts at 2 and finishes. You do one 45-minute set, and then you get a break for 15 minutes and get something to eat. So listen, I – so it's it's something – that I experienced during that year. And for whatever reason that year, I wound up in a lot of uh, African-American communities. Mm. And I played in quite a few churches, Um, you know, Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches that had me as a guest, you know, as part of my gig. Like I would be the day before I didn't have a gig and I'd meet somebody on the street and then it turned out it would be a, a pastor or somebody and I would explain what he said, oh, well, come out to my church. You can play, for, you can do your gig at the church. Right. And the things that I saw in the church, the way that the the service flowed was so opposite to where I came from. I came from, you know, the North Long Island suburbs and was brought up Catholic. And it was like, it's like what you just said. The mask is at 1115 and Mm -hmm. finishes at 1215. And you will sing these songs and this is what happens. So what I saw in these churches was anything was accepted that would happen. And, and there was no time limit on how long the church, on how long the service would be to the point where like, okay, so I showed up with an accordion and the band is now I'm, I'm playing music that I don't even know in, in, in the most highest, you have, you have people that are coming to the service to worship their God. Yeah. And here I am, some guy that doesn't look like them does it, you know, again, the same theme and yet they've, uh, welcomed me in a way that blew my mind because listen i did a gig one time at this church in saint augustine florida the guy i can't even get into the whole story about how that happened but i'm in the thing and this is the the day before i had met the music minister so the so then and the, and that morning before the service i met the pastor who's who's conducting the service so in the middle of the service they're letting me play and they go this man is traveling all over the place and, you know, he came to bless us here today. We're going to put out a table for him. And oh. uh, you, which this had nothing to do with what I was doing. I was embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. almost ready to cry. I was like, it, I couldn't. And it was around Christmas time. So I, what I did was I, it was a table full of money. And this is a, this is a place in the St. Augustine called Lincolnville. It's one of the first places um, uh, settled by freed slaves because uh, Lincoln's secretary of state, Put aside all this land down there and it's a poor poor neighborhood i had a, a table full of money i gathered it all up and i went very quietly in the back and put it in the secret santa thing that they had oh, in the yeah. back but that was and that's not just me like there was people that came in would walk into the church there were people um that had uh or, autism 
that came in the back and they were singing Christmas carols and they stopped the whole service and brought them up to the front and let them sing. And they yeah. were they they weren't uh, from the neighborhood. They were just coming around singing. And I couldn't help but contrast that to the services that I grew up as a kid where nothing like that ever happened. I'm not saying that people did, you know, everybody's got to work with where they come from and everything. And I don't have any, um, you know, bad feelings about it. I had a great upbringing up there, but the, the contrast. Yeah. And you know, what's crazy is that year I went and played the church that I had grown up in. And I have to say it was a real, uh, letdown yeah. because of how, uh, the res- the the kind of welcoming they had got the the guy I didn't know the pastor at the church where I was from it was too many years later the guy I knew had left, but the guy barely even said hello to me it was like that kind of thing I got to do my service and you know you can play with the children's choir and do your thing because I knew knew the children's uh, choir director was somebody I'd worked with when I was there, and the thing that I thought about particularly with playing my church. I thought about my friend Malcolm, who plays bass drum. Yeah. And the bass drum up on Long Island, the way he plays it would be really as, in a way, as foreign as me coming into the brass band tradition playing the accordion. And I would think about him, imagine if this was the other way around. What would be the best that he could hope for? Hmm. I'll tell you one thing. There's no way that he would have been paid as an equal and welcomed in on the day that he arrived. Right. That, that would, I can get, I would bet my, everything that I have on that. Yeah. Um, but you know, he might also get a lot worse, you know, whereas like, so if he showed up playing a bass drum, the police might get called. You know, what are you doing? I mean, and again, I, I, I love the people wh- where I grew up, but I can't help. But as, as you know, the, the, the world that we're living in today with all this stuff brings all this stuff even into more relief. I mean, I was thinking about this back in 2011 because it was a theme that was right in front of my face all the time. Hmm. But, you know, now more than ever, you know, so I mean, I, I mean, I, like you say, oh, I did this and I, you know, I, I was obligated. I'm obligated. I was obligated to make that film. The universe, you know, I mean, I didn't even do enough in my opinion. I mean, in that film making it almost killed me as I shared with you, you know, I right. mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't. I, so there's an obligation. I mean, because there is something wrong. <laughs> yeah let's just say it yeah you know, no, that's right. this, uh, something is not right when when i can have that consistent experience and and someone from there can't have a consistent experience the way i had mm-hmm. you know there is something wrong like you say um if the if the shoe were on the other foot you're right Malcolm would have gotten worse. There's no question. <laughs> yeah, listen, listen, listen. I just, I could tell you a story about Eugene. I mean, 
look, as I told you, I played a lot around Eugene because my aunt lives in Junction City. And so I was out there with her and, and my uncle looking for gigs for like a month when I was out there. And, you know, we had we played we were, I was playing at the, the Hult Center with uh, Yo-Yo Ma one night and the day you know, rehearsals didn't count for this gig thing. So the like the day before. I needed a gig and I'm like driving around going to like, you know, into a bar. They're like, no, we don't want any accordion, but you know, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm walking around, we go down into Springfield and we were just about ready to give up. We had walked into some, you know, hole in the wall bar and across the street, I see this sign and it was a very strange sign. It said our sewing room. I don't know if it's still there, but, and I'm like, <laughs> I look in the window <laughs> and it's like all these people like sewing and stuff. So I'm like, Wow, let's check this out. So I go in there, and it's as quiet as a mouse because the room is filled with fabric. So you can imagine it's like dead, like you know, yeah, just dead, like yeah. all, the whole acoustics of the whole play the, you know, of the experience changed the minute the door. I walked in and the door shut. So I see a guy like reading the paper and a t-shirt behind the desk, and, and then it's like mostly women like sewing. So I go up to him like, "Hey, you know, hi, I'm doing this thing." You know. So he just looks at me like I'm nuts, and he goes, "Listen, he goes, I'm just, I just, I, this, my wife runs this place. She's over there sewing." <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, so I tell her, and she's like, "Well, you know, as long as it's not going to be too loud, you know." I'm like, "No," I said, "You know, this is what it's all about. It's not, you know, I'm gonna fit in wherever I can." So I'm grateful. So I started playing and. You know, they're all sewing and I'm playing, you know, all my quietest repertoire and, you know, Bach and Clementi and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so I finish and she's, she's, she goes, that was beautiful. She goes, but I thought you were going to play some Zydeco. And then I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> I ripped it. And then they're all dancing around the place. But to bring it back to what we're talking about, you know, and maybe, maybe I would hope that I would be wrong. That that if if I came from New Orleans and was like Malcolm, that that something like that would not have been entertained, you know, the way it was for me. I, I but I my suspicion lies, and it's really not a reflection on the people at all, because this is something that's wrong, like on a level that's mm -hmm. generations old, you know, and I don't know what the solution is, you know, um, but it's like I suspect that he would not his batting average would have been a lot worse than mine yeah just because of the where he comes from and the way that he looks yeah 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 what i dig about your story and and that whole 365 thing that you did where you played which it's it's unimaginable for most musicians i think um especially musicians who are going to school for music they're expecting to take auditions they're they're doing they're doing that racket um, the idea of playing traveling the world playing 365 days is uh, unimaginable but what I love about it and reminds me of another brief story which I'll share with you about the the music series at the shelter was just that you meet people where you they are and you yep. play and and that's that's kind of it. That's that's the manifesto. When I saw yep. <clears throat> one of the shows um, for the shelter uh, featured a, a, a called Alvin Batiste, the great Alvin Batiste. Right? Yeah, yep. Um, and music educator and 
uh, what a player, what a voice, and what a his spirit, formidable. Um, so I, you know, he he agreed to do it. He said, "Do you mind if I bring a bunch of, like a big band?" I said, "More the merrier, totally do it, whatever you want." So he brought, he showed up. Of course, he was like a half an hour late, and I was like really concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> The producer in me was like really sweating. Yes, you know? yes. Um, but he showed up and he had a, a van full of kids and they all came onto sort of this, the makeshift stage that we had. And I got even more nervous. Like, okay, some of these kids, they don't even know how to open up these boxes that, that hold these instruments, right? right. This, this does not... This does not... Um, give me a lot of confidence in what's about to happen. But, you know, I'm stepping back. Like, it's for the musicians. I'm, I'm stepping back. These kids get out there and they, they're even asking Alvin, like, how do I put this clarinet together? And I'm getting more and more nervous and all that. These are... <laughs> <laughs> so these, they start playing. Uh, Alvin gets the r- rhythm section to start going. And then he starts yelling he starts just yelling at these kids in the most, uh, how do I put it, um, the most affirming way. Just go, go, play, play. You know, just they all knew him well enough to know that that was their green light and they're just going to go. And I heard some of these kids play their instruments for the first time, I, I believe. It sounded that way anyway. But right. with enthusiasm and spirit and just like musicality, to the wall and it actually felt like i was watching part of this problem that you're alluding to where in not i wasn't watching the problem i was watching the solution the problem in in music education for instance is that we don't necessarily meet students where they are we don't encourage them to to just go we say, hold on, stop. You got to learn this first and then this first and, you know, a, a litany of things before you ever get the green light. But right. what I was seeing was like in the opposite. What your story reminded me of was how Alvin met these students where they were and just encouraged them to go. And I'll tell you, man, the audience was on their feet the entire time because I think what they were listening for truly was just spirit. They wanted to oh, hear man. spirit. You just nailed it. It's, I mean, there's no doubt that you're right. And let me tell you something. Like Yo-Yo Ma himself, and we had these conversations with a bunch of musicians when we were playing with him. You know, people would inevitably make mistakes. And it, you know what? And it, and we all talked about it. It's like, it's not the notes you're playing. It's the energy with which you're playing them. Yeah. And that just sums it up. It's a very Zen thing when you really get into it. Cause I mean like, well, oh, okay. So I can just play nothing. Well, I, I mean, just play anything, you know, or nothing, you know, yeah. but you know, um, but that is the ultimate, it's especially in today, well, everything that we're dealing with. We, I mean, it's, if you come and play, with that spirit of a go spirit and, and connecting to the joy in us, that's it, man. That's why New Orleans is what it is and why, you know, with the beginning of this conversation, how that's why hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world come here year after year.
Yeah. It's because of the joy and the transformation that's happening within the music and, and how joyful these music makers are. Cause, and cause they have quite a contrast because they maybe grew up with not, a, you know, with the opposite of joy and maybe have still have that in their lives. So when they let it rip and go, 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 they know how to go because they're trying to leave all that stuff in the dust. Michael Ward Bergman's documentary, The Saints and Sinners of Jackson Square, is running the festival circuit right now, including the Big Apple Film Festival. The soundtrack for the documentary can be purchased through Louisiana Music Factory. Thanks for joining us on this extended interview with Michael Ward Bergman.